This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings from iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Our book today is Waldo Emerson, My Grandfather and Me, a novel written by my author Eugene X. Perticone. Welcome to the program, sir. Well, thank you very much. And you're joining me from New York State, pretty part of the world. Uh, thank yep. you for, for taking time to visit to the, today. This is a fictional work, I understand, but it has some um, other elements to it. Share the background story. Why was this written, Gene? Well, um, it was written basically on the uh, impulse following an intuition that I should do it. Well, that's I, interesting. Um, yeah, I've been uh, you know very conversant with the writings of this particular um uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and uh, it was sort of a personal inspiration to get going on it. You have uh, authored other books in addition to this. Are they all fictional? No. The first five books have been uh, either clinical psychology books or personal growth books, things of that sort. This one, does it have any of those elements? Uh, you mentioned to me you have some underlying themes. Do they uh, pull from that background? Well, yes, I think so, because uh, the book is essentially... Uh, it's got many facets. It's very, very light reading. It could be enjoyable just reading a little story of a boy and his grandfather and the nature of the problems that his family faces. But it also taps on things that are very, very serious and uh, profound, rather, when when the grandfather starts teaching this boy things about Ralph Waldo Emerson, who isn't exactly easy to understand. Oh, that's true. Uh, you have had a fascination with Waldo Emerson, and uh, you must have done some research related to that in order to weave it into your storyline. Well, not really. This is a very peculiar thing. In the book I talk about, the, the grandfather talks about um, to this, the grandson how ideas can come through a person as opposed to coming from a person, and he gives examples of this. Um, you know, the, the point is that when something comes through a person, it's as if it doesn't come really from him, but from some inspiration inside that he doesn't really know about. That's actually the way the book was written. There was no preparation, no research, no outlining beforehand, but chapter by chapter, just sitting at the keyboard and going ahead with it and see, uh, seeing what came. The main characters, uh, obviously a grandfather and his uh, grandson. What names right. do they have? I beg your pardon. Would you what, what are the question? Yes, what are the names of your main characters? Uh, well, there is uh, the grandfather, whose name is Sam, um, and there is the grandma, who is also just referred to as grandma. There's the boy's father, uh, his mother, and especially his girlfriend, uh, uh, actually a girl who becomes his girlfriend, whose name is Sally. Now, the grandson himself, uh, what age would he be, and uh, who's your target audience because of that? Well, uh, it, not necessarily because of that, because the book is designed to uh, appeal to teenagers, but also to certainly to adults and teachers who work with young people as well. So it's um, rather got a broad spectrum of uh, potentially interested readers. 327 pages. That must have taken a while to complete. How long did it take? It took 38 days. One chapter, really? One chapter a day. 
for 38 days without any planning. That's incredible. Maybe it's the inspirational part of the country you're in, but how did that come about where you just had the energy and the desire and the story just flowed? Well, the idea came to me uh, at least six months before I actually began writing, but I'm very busy. I work primarily, I have worked primarily with people doing counseling and things of that sort uh, with them. And I had this idea in my mind, and one day I said, I've got to sit down at the keyboard. And I did, and wrote the first chapter. And then every day after that, it was the same thing. Write another chapter. Again, as I said, the book unfolded by itself as if I was not writing, but something inside of me was doing the writing. Just inspiration. Well, it may have been inspiration. Whatever it was, I am uh, very grateful for it. I don't take all the credit for it. There's something else besides me. As you began the outline and the story, did you develop it as a character-driven plot, or is it uh, personality or action-driven? Well, it was really uh, driven by wanting very much to get across the ideas of uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, because I think they're very, very uh, necessary for humankind, especially with the kind of messy world we have today, that is to take on not not simply an appreciation of the natural world, but to understand that it has correlates that we can call spiritual, for want of a better word for it. And it's the balance between these two in a person's life that really makes him or her a whole person. Which of those lessons do you think came through the strongest in those messages? Well, uh, I think uh, it's really hard to say because I think it appears that the book is designed, although I didn't intentionally uh, design it this way, to serve needs of different people at different stages or in different places in their own lives. I could see teenagers um, uh, relating to this book in terms of how to get along with parents and how to get along with your boyfriend or girlfriend. I can see people who are just interested in light entertainment, but... Uh, wanting to be reminded of their own uh, early days as uh, young children. And I can see people who are interested, actually from a scholarly point of view, um, in rehearsing or reviewing the concepts of uh, uh, this great American uh, philosopher and poet and writer uh, in a way that's uh, entertaining as well as instructive. You begin chapter one, I was only one month from my 12th birthday, when on one rainy August afternoon I find myself feeling particularly bored and frustrated because I had nothing special to do. Did that draw from your own life experiences? It most certainly did. As a young fellow, uh, summertime was always wonderful because there was no school. But on the other hand, um, especially for a kid that lived in the country, there weren't uh, too many other people around, and uh, uh, very often I'd turn to mom and say, Mom, what can I do today? And she would make suggestions that sometimes I'd follow, sometimes not. (laughs) I think I've been there. I think a lot of your readers will have been there as well. Sally is an important, uh, I guess, side note or part of this chapter or part of this this storyline. Chapter 10, you have Sally meets Waldo. What is that chapter about? Well, the the two uh, youngsters, uh, Sally and... um, uh, Matthew, who's the um, real main character of the book, who tells the story from his own point of view, or at a very special place that they go to very often. It's called the Glen, and this is an actual place that's a beautiful spot with a beautiful little stream running through this uh, Glen-like uh, uh, valley. And um, they have a chat, and Thanksgiving is coming up, and the young boy Matthew realizes that uh, Sally's family doesn't do things in the traditional 
American way, I, but I think it's a traditional American way, which is having a turkey for Thanksgiving. And he chats about this because they always have a ham, see? And that's no big deal, but she could see, uh, he could see that Sally would love to have had that experience too. And he said, hey, why don't you come over to my grandpa and grandma's house because that's where we're going for Thanksgiving. And she, her eyes opened wide, and oh, gee, she'd love to do this. But then she says, I, I couldn't do that. Mom would be very upset if I didn't want to stay home with the family for Thanksgiving. So to make a long story short, uh, an idea comes to the boy uh, about a particular concept that Emerson has in his essay, Self-Reliance. It's about um, being true to yourself and um, you know, not living in lie. And so he raises this question and, and actually brings the girl home and gets the book and reads that particular sentence uh, from the essay. And he points out, look, it's not just you wanting to do what you want, but if you don't at least try to do this, you're not being true to yourself. In other words, you're living a lie. And that's kind of an indirect and subtle kind of understanding that even a lot of adults wouldn't understand if they read that sentence. But uh, no matter how long you've lived in, in life, it's better for us all to live in truth, and that's good for everybody. And he says, see, it's good for everybody. So anyway, the girl gets the inspiration, and she's encouraged by him, and she actually talks to her mother about it. Uh, you know, And to her surprise, uh, they have an interchange, the mother and uh, Sally, uh, like they've never had before, where they're both confiding, they end up hugging each other, and to make a long story short, she does spend Thanksgiving here. So she learns the lesson of living in truth, and at least facing it, and if, you, if I can't do it, okay, that's fine, I can't do it, but at least I'm honest, and I'm honest with myself, which is something that being a, quote, good, unquote, girl, she typically wouldn't do because she'd defer to other people's uh, wishes too often. Important concept. That you shared, yes. And when you began this, what time frame, what period is this novel set in? The uh, time frame is, is approximately the early 50s, perhaps the late, very late 1940s or early 50s. And it's written from that perspective. No electronics to interfere with personal interaction. That's correct. <laughs> that was a good choice, by the way. I like that idea. If you were to introduce this in a couple of sentences to my listeners, what would you say to them to get them interested in getting their own personal, unautographed copy of Waldo Emerson, My Grandfather and Me? Well, I think what I would say is that this is a book that's really easy to read, just a simple enjoyment. It will be a reminder of their own lives, but it also contains very uplifting ideas about spiritual possibilities that can really be put into practice in the reader's own lives. All the things that are in the book, in other words, if you take them as suggestions for yourself, you'll see that you can actually put some of these ideas that the kid is learning from his grandfather into life practice to make life a little bit better. I like your perspective. Are there a couple of other things that came through when you completed this? Maybe lessons or other things that the reader can take away from this? Well, I think there are. There, there, there's the, the particularly the understanding that everything that we pay attention to is material, but all things in life experience aren't material. Some are immaterial, and I equate that with spiritual. Spiritual means not having a substantive body, not not something. But it is nevertheless real. An idea is real. You have a dream, it's real. But you can't show it to anybody. You can maybe describe things, but you can't actually present it as a material thing in front of another person. 
And we don't pay attention to that aspect. If you pay attention to nature, and of course this is a lesson of Emerson, and look closely at it, you'll see that the things in nature correspond to something else, both in the practical world on one dimension and in the spiritual world in another dimension. And when you get a sense of that and you try to live in a way that balances both, you, you don't miss what life is really all about, at least in my opinion and certainly in Emerson's opinion. 327 pages. You are an advanced author, having completed six pieces or six works before this. What was the challenge that you faced getting this one completed? Well, uh, quite frankly, the challenge uh, was only to uh, trust myself to let it go. In other words, not try to figure out what I should write, but just let it come through me instead of coming from me. That's something that's not easy to do because I've been trained in scholarly tradition, having been a college professor as well as a psychologist in private practice, and that means always thinking, being very rational, and uh, um, reasoning things out. But reasoning isn't always the best solution. In fact, if you look at the world today and see how people in different parts of the world are reasoning, it's not so good. Mm. Trusting things coming from the heart. That's also very, very important. I don't mean it should be one to the exclusion of the other. Both perspectives are very necessary for a balanced life. Tapping the emotional side, then, was the challenge, and you overcame that to complete Waldo Emerson, My Grandfather and Me, a novel, our author, Eugene X. Perticone. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Where can my, my listeners get copies of your book? Well, you can get it probably from any bookstore who can order it for you, but the easiest way is probably online through something like uh, Amazon.com and uh, Barnes & Noble. Both of them sell the book at something of a discount, which is probably an advantage. This book looks as though it would be an enjoyable read. Great afternoon activity for those that are looking for something to do and an adventure all rolled into one novel. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. I really appreciate your time and interest. Thanks so much. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With Baby and Toddler Instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our book today is titled Finding My Voice with Aphasia, Walking Through Aphasia. And my author who joins me from Massachusetts is Carol M. Maloney. Carol, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I read a little bit of your early education. 
Uh, you were considered not to be the individual in high school that was going to make a career in college. And yet you took some negative advice and turned it around. Tell us a little of your early history. My early history was I had a, a problem with reading, and no one found it. And when I was in high school, um, I was a C student, and I had a, a sister, Sister Rose Pollard, who took me aside and said, "You can't read. That's why your 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 grades are so low." So. She took me under her wing, and she taught me how to read. And by the time the year was up, I was reading at grade level, and she actually taught me the skills I needed to teach when I was teaching um, sophomore boys later on in um, my life. So you became She's a, a great inspirer. You became an educator because of a good, inspiring educator. Yes. Fabulous. Your book, though, is not just about your early years as a, a student on your way to becoming an educator, but you talk about the term or the word aphasia. Most of my listeners don't understand what that word refers to, and you talk about your journey and walking through aphasia. What is aphasia? Aphasia is um, the result of a stroke or a head injury in which you it's on the left lobe of your brain and you lose the inability to speak, to understand, to um, mostly all your cognitive um, abilities are gone. Um, your, your short-term memory loss, your long-term memory loss. I lost my ability to do math. Um, you uh, cannot put sentences together because your mind is constantly swirling, and it causes you the inability to focus, to create a sentence, and then actually verbalize it. Um, a lot of times when you meet people who had had a stroke maybe a year ago, a lot of people will walk away and say, gee, there's something wrong. And usually it's that inability or the slowness that aphasia causes when you speak. Unfortunately, it's unknown. No one has ever heard of it. I never heard of it until I had it. And I've become more and more um, aware of the fact that no one knows what it is. And they take the lack of um, communication skills and they assume that you've lost your intelligence, which is not true. The intelligence is there. It's just getting it out of your mouth. And speaking. How long ago did this happen, Carol, in your life? Um, it was happening in uh, June of 2009. 2009. And did your doctors immediately understand that aphasia was taking over or, or uh, the problem that you were facing? Yes, they came in to me the uh, second or third day after the um, stroke and told me that I probably would never speak clearly again um, or speak in any um, understanding way. And the speech therapist came in and she explained it to me. And we started a routine where I would 
first of all, I had to begin to recognize them. They would show me a picture of a cat, and I would have no clue what it was. Mm. So once we went through the cognitive level being raised, um, for every syllable and every word that I spoke, I drew a line on a piece of paper. And that's how the effect, that's how I began to speak. It was, I stuttered, um, I had to try very hard to actually pronounce the words, but eventually by drawing a line, I was able to say thank you or yeah. hello. Those those uh, electrical currents that attach different parts of the brain begin to come together again because of your persistence and your courage. Yes, I could not accept the fact that I could not speak because I am very dedicated to my students. I taught in a vocational school uh, in, in an inner city in northern Massachusetts. And my communication skills and my my teaching skills were destroyed with the aphasia, and I was not going to let that happen to me. I was determined I was going to go back to teaching. Do you think part of that fight that's inside that made you want to get it all back and get back to a, a place of normalcy was possibly the result of the fact of your early education when some of your instructors didn't feel you had a possibility of ever going to college? Yes, I was told when I was in high school the only thing I would ever do would be a waitress. Mm. And um, about 20 years later, we had a 20th uh, reunion, and at that time I was um, teaching, um, I was working as a fiduciary or trustee for a company and because I couldn't get a teaching job right away, but I was teaching probate law. I was teaching um, estate and um, estate taxes and trust taxes. And I went out, I bought a Chanel suit, I put my best jewelry on, <laughs> I got my card, and I walked up to the nun that told me I could never um, to be anything other than a waitress, and I said, can I get you what anything? I am, and I walked away. <laughs> I just thought you might have said, now, what can I get you? Can I get you a cookie or some drinks or something like that? No, I guess that wouldn't happen. Uh, no, no I, I, I was, wasn't that kind. Just thought that would have been fun. As you began to see progress, how long did that take? It took about a year and a half before I saw any progress. Um, in the beginning, my father and I would play charades. And then eventually, um, instead of drawing lines on a piece of paper to talk, I started using my hand. And I realized this works. It may be slow, and I may forget words, but I can describe what I want to say. And so I decided to use my hand so that I could speak. And then I assumed that I could go back teaching, moving my hand, and as, as a result, the kids would learn tolerance of disabilities. Fascinating so that, story. Basically, it's a fascinating story what you have accomplished so far, and 
and a, a great commendation to your will and your drive and determination. How long did it take you to decide that you needed to tell your story? I was in a restaurant, and I was moving my hand when I was ordering. And the woman said to me, you're, why are you moving your hand? And I said, I have aphasia. And she said, well, it looks really stupid. Oh, that was horrible. And I said to myself, no, no, no. I have my intelligence. I have, I'm very well educated. I said, no, people need to know what aphasia is. So I sat down and I started writing my book on aphasia. And then I went to a um, the National Aphasia Convention in Boston, Association Convention, and I was told that in Massachusetts, if you have aphasia, you cannot testify as a witness because you are not considered um, competent. Wow. Well, I was like, that's insane. You, your intelligence is there. It's just trying to get it out of your mouth. And so then I said, that's it. I'm writing the book. And one of the purposes of the book is to tell people, hey, after somebody has a stroke or a head injury and they seem a little slow to you, it's aphasia. It's not they lost their intelligence. And that's one of the purposes of the book. And and so far, um, I've met a couple of people and I showed them my technique and they've had people who had strokes and it's been very helpful for them. So it is workable and, and, and you can do it. You know, it, it takes time. Uh, even myself, when I, as I move my hand, sometimes I get caught up and then I have to start all over again with the rhythm, but it's, you can't speak intelligently with aphasia. Well, you're doing a remarkable job if there's any type of challenge that you're currently facing. It's not obvious, at least by telephone interview. How would you introduce the book, the concept, and the mission to my listeners in a couple of sentences or paragraphs? The book is a memoir of um, my life from the beginning when we were kids. It starts out with my parents yelling, when my mother yelling, it's 6 o'clock in the morning, let's go, we got to have to clean the house. It's an Irish saying that she always had. Through my high school years, and then when I became a teacher, and then it follows, the rest of the book follows my, what it was like to have a stroke, what I needed, how I learned I had aphasia, and how I learned that stress can cause a lot of problems. Stress caused my stroke, and you just take the energy from that stress and you put it on yourself to change it and channel it to learn how to deal with the disability from a stroke and how to speak again. And the points of the book are, one, aphasia needs, there should be more aphasia awareness in this country, and special education needs to be changed because for three years I was a special education person because I had cognitive abilities that dropped to the fourth grade. 
and then I had to rebuild, rebuild them to where I am now. And the other part of the book is just let things go. If something happens, forget about it and live your life. I was given a new life. You can start a new life just by letting people and thoughts and all the garbage before go and live on, live for the day and not for yesterday. This is an important story that you are telling, uh, Carol. Thank you for having the courage to share your story and your journey. Finding Your Voice, or Finding My Voice is the title with aphasia, Walking Through Aphasia. My guest, Carol M. Maloney. This must have been challenging. Where do we get copies of your book? They're on Amazon.com, and I do have a website, and that's um, copingwithaphasia.net. And aphasia is spelled A-P-H-A-S-I-A. Thank you, Carol, for joining right. me today. Thank you very much for having me. Enjoyed the visit, and best to you as you continue your journey. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Fire from the Sky, A Diary Over Japan. And the author is Ron Greer, and Ron joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Ron. Hello. How are you? Well, great to have you with us, and really calling you the author is a bit of a stretch because you really put together the memoirs of your father who flew during the war and was uh, very young and flew in those great uh, super fortresses, the B-29, and all those bombing runs over Japan, right? How many bombing runs was he involved with? 28 bombing missions off of Guam over Japan through the last few months of World War II. And so he is really the main author. Right, he is the main author. You put the book together, and he passed away in 2007, 86 years of age, and you've made this incredible discovery. That's correct. I found his diary in his closet, and as I started to read it, it was so detailed that I decided uh, that I needed to... Uh, have a discussion with him and it gave me a point of reference to talk about World War II 
because that was something he never really talked about, which is so typical of veterans. 23 years of age, uh, carrying a crew on one of these B-29s, carrying 20,000 pounds of bombs. Now, that's difficult for us to comprehend. What what does that mean, 20,000 pounds of bombs? They traditionally carried either 4,500-pounders or 189-100-pounders, and they consisted of, uh, of jelly gasoline or napalm. And so the destruction, the devastation, the absolute... Um, what, I mean, how do we put that into perspective? Let's talk about what we all have pictures of Hiroshima. What 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 kind of devastation did one of these planes, uh, payloads deliver? Well, you were dropping on what was traditionally bamboo, wood, and paper cities. Uh, one firebombing mission, which may incorporate 300 to 400 airplanes, each with 20,000 pounds of bombs, devastated more area and quite honestly killed more people than the two A-bombs combined. Now, the difference being 300 to 400 airplanes versus two, but they had to look long and hard for cities to drop the A-bombs on because they had emaciated uh, all the major cities in Japan. 28 missions flying from Guam. Obviously, they had some run-ins with the enemy. Correct. Traditionally, it was it was basically 1,500 miles one way just to get to Japan, and then you had 1,500 going back, and depending on which city you were scheduled to bomb. So it were, they were long missions, anywhere from 16 to 18 hours in length, which gave you a lot of time to reflect and think about whether this was your last mission. The zeros... Uh, would traditionally come up and fly close by and radio to the anti-aircraft guns below your altitude and airspeed. And that's when they use searchlights. And once they got the searchlights on you, you were center stage and main act. Yeah, I can't even imagine uh, how to deal with all that. Obviously, you're you're nowhere you can go. I mean, you've got to complete the mission in spite of all this anti-aircraft uh, firepower. Uh, did he have any close calls? Yeah, several times they they were hit with flak. Uh, one of which. Uh, they had 59 holes in the airplane, one of which was was so large in the wing uh, that it locked the ailerons, and they had to fly back to Guam uh, on trim, uh, which created a problem for Tell us how you structured the book. Well, uh I first wanted the reader to get to know a little bit about my father from his early years and then uh, his time going into the service. This was during the the Depression uh, period. My father was the oldest of seven children. He quit the 10th grade to go to work to provide income for the family, which was not uncommon during those times. Uh, He went to pilot school 
uh, actually passed the exam, but but washed out uh, because of his lack of math skills. <clears throat> so they made him a gunner, and then uh, sent him to uh, Albuquerque, Alamogordo, excuse me, uh, New Mexico, and made him a trainer for radio, uh, for the radio on both beat seven beat seventeens, B twenty fours, and B twenty nines. We then hear from him through the written entries of his diary, which is the the crux of the book. Uh, and it, and what is so compelling is the fact that my father, like all other uh, military individuals, were ordinary Americans showing extraordinary uh, valor. You know, it's all the, like President Truman uh, said at one point, or Roosevelt, I think it was, uh, that it was all the small things put together uh, that, that made the difference in the war. And then we hear from him uh, after he returns uh, from World War II and his 30 mission, 32 missions, he flies over Korea with his brother in the same airplane as the co-pilot. Uh, and then his military career and retirement in 1964 from Little Rock Air Force Base. So it's broken down into actual entries day by day concerning a mission that he is on at that time. For example, I look in Chapter 6, here we are in 1945, you got the 3rd of May, the 4th of May, the 5th of May, 7th, 8th, 10th, 11th, these are all... Uh, missions that he is flying. I mean, they're coming at him really quickly. That that had to be grueling. That's correct. You were flying missions about every two or three days, and when you consider the length, uh, the length of the mission, sixteen to eighteen hours, uh, they were moving them pretty quickly. So we go from the third of May until what's the last mission that he flies? World War Two was that in July of forty five? No, he flies, uh, the last mission he flies is uh, a POW drop uh, after the war. Now, he also flies formation on September 1st when they, when they did the actual signing of the surrender on the Missouri. And a lot of the airplanes broke formation which didn't make MacArthur very happy, but they flew down low, his being one of them, over a little suburb of Tokyo called Nobioko, about 400 feet, and women and children were actually waving at them, so happy that the war was over. One of the themes of your book, Freedom is Not Free. That is something I don't think people can really understand today. Uh, that Such a simple statement, but the, prof- the profound depth of that short phrase is uh, most people can't understand. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Uh, unless you've been in the military and, and been in a situation... Uh, 
where your life was at risk. It, it's hard to, uh, to conceptually understand. And I think what you what, said before, you know, ordinary Americans showing extraordinary valor. I mean, these were really young men, and there were obviously young women involved in in the war effort as well. But the 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 unity of the efforts that was the power, wasn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, the uh, plant Boeing made the aircraft that my father flew, and it was built in uh, Wichita, Kansas. And at that time, because of all the males in the military, they had to look beyond, and 39% of the workforce at the Boeing plant were females, where we get the Rosie the Riveter uh, mm. saying. And I think it's the first time they ever had to deal with daycare. <laughs> I'm sure they, right. Well, you know, we these are the kinds of things that really give us insight into what a uh, total effort by the United States. Uh, it was. That's why they call it the greatest generation. Yeah, that's correct. What were some of you the know, what were some of the things that surprised you from what your father wrote? Anything that just kind of you know stood out and you went, "Oh my goodness!" Well, first of all, I think, uh, and he was asked later in life, "Why did you why did you keep this diary?" In uh, his comments, were you know, I really don't know why, but I'm sure glad I did to have the the forethought of being able to write all this information down, not only in terms of facts and details, but in terms of his feelings and emotions that he experienced during those missions. So it really provides the reader with the opportunity to be part of the crew and experience what my father experienced in those missions. Right. So, what kind of what kind of legacy does your father leave for your family and others who, you know, are so interested in in uh, this time in America, this this very special time where, uh, if it hadn't have been for America, who knows what the world would be like today? One of the things about my father was he was never boastful about anything uh, through up to through his retirement uh, was a ordinary uh, American that obviously had a lot of faith in uh, our military and maintaining the freedoms that we currently enjoy but it, it was really an opportunity to put him in the limelight because he had never really been there uh, personally and and that's the primary reason I wrote the book the other was that he wanted people to understand because there's been very little written about the B-29 and the missions over Japan and what the risks were because they had already scheduled uh, invasion, Operation Downfall, which was 
uh, to start in uh, November of 45 to invade the smaller item, island of uh, Kyushu, and then in March of 46 to invade the larger island, Honshu. Just in preparation of the invasion for for the smaller island of uh, Kyushu, they minted over 500,000 Purple Hearts because mm. they had calculated uh, that the uh, loss of life would be great uh, because the closer we got to Japan, the more fanatical the Japanese were, quite honestly. Your book is also filled with great black and white photos. Yes. Yeah, he brought back uh, a lot of actual intelligence photos. Uh, and from the photos, you can see the actual altitude, uh, the time of day, the date, uh, the target in accordance, and then the airplane ID. We've been listening to Ron Greer telling the story about his father who flew B-29s, 28 missions uh, during World War II over Japan. The title of the book, Fire from the Sky, A Diary Over Japan, uh, his father's memoirs of those 28 missions, and then as well as uh, Korea, and kind of a look back uh, after he uh, got into his later years, kind of reflecting on the whole thing. So what an incredible book, Ron. I was so grateful that you put this together. And I, I'm, uh, it, was, it was for my father. How do we get the book, Fire from the Sky? What's the best way? Uh, the website is www.diaryoverjapan.com. Thank you so much, Ron, for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. Appreciate it. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.